In the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, I charge you to keep the commandment without spot or blame until the manifestation of our Lord Jesus Christ, which which he will bring about at the right time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Please pray with me. Dear God in heaven, we ask you to join us here this morning to be here with us in this place. And we trust that you are here. May my words be your words and all of our thoughts, your thoughts. We pray all of this in Jesus name. Amen. Please sit. So I am currently in the middle of rereading one of my favorite possessions that I own, the complete Calvin and Hobbes, which Aya gave me either for my birthday or for Christmas a few years ago. One of the things that I had forgotten about Calvin and Hobbes, which is a seminal comic strip about a little boy, his stuffed tiger, and the imaginary adventures that they share, I had forgotten how old it is. Uh, the artist only drew this strip from 1985 to 1995. Uh, Calvin is approximately my age. This is um, terrifying to me. And yet all these years later, it remains as funny, insightful, and profound as it ever was. I'm not sure if you'd rather I be the preacher who's always quoting movies or the preacher who's always quoting Calvin and Hobbes, but I got to tell you, I'm considering switching. There's a lot of great illustrations there. One, one in particular that I came across this week, it's Christmas time, as it often is in Calvin's world, and he's wondering how good a kid needs to be to get a lot of presents from Santa. He says, I've been wondering, is it truly being good if the only reason I behave well is so I can get more loot at Christmas? I mean, really, all I'm doing is saying I can be bribed. Is that good enough? Or do I have to be good in my heart and spirit? In other words, do I really have to be good or do I just have to act good? And of course, Hobbes, in his wisdom, says, I suppose in your case, Santa will have to take what he can get. (laughs) So... Calvin, a very precocious six-year-old, is probing the difference between acting good and being good. And in our reading this morning from 1 Timothy 6, we sort of get an adult version of this, don't we? St. Paul charges Timothy and us to keep God's commandment without spot or blame. So Paul is requiring that Timothy actually be good. Right, Not just acting good, that's not enough. Without spot or blame implies what Calvin is talking about, about being good in your heart and in your spirit. But before we dive into 1 Timothy, I want to rewind for a second. Last week, we read from Luke chapter 16, in which Jesus told a parable about a dishonest manager. So this guy who was about to get fired for mismanaging his master's money, went and drastically reduced the debts of the people who owed his master, ingratiating himself to them so that when he ultimately got fired, 
they might give him a place to stay. And Jesus says that our generosity, while not coming from the same motivation, should be just as counterintuitive as that, right? Just as the dishonest manager was generous with his master's money, not his own, we should be generous because everything we have is our master's too. Everything we have is God's. And then, as if that's not a profound enough message, we talked about how that is an illustration of the good news of the gospel. That Jesus himself is also like the dishonest manager, being overflowingly generous with his master's possession, holiness and righteousness, giving them to sinners like you and me. Amen? Amen. Now, some of you are like, huh, if you could say that in a minute and a half, how come it took you almost 20 minutes last week? These elementary school gym chairs aren't that comfortable, you know. But that was the message last week. This week, I think ultimately what we have here is a pretty similar message, but preached in a very different form. So last week, we had uh, what might be thought of as a pretty obtuse or hard to understand Parable. I think three quarters of the articles I looked up about the parable of the dishonest manager were titled something like Jesus's hardest parable or something similar. This week, no one is saying that what Paul is writing to Timothy is hard to understand, even though he's making the same basic point. Listen to what Paul says once again. But as for you, man of God, shun all this and shun all this. He's referring to the love of money and other things that cause people to wander away from the faith. He says, shun all this, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and for which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. In the presence of God, this is, he's getting serious now. In the presence of God, who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, I charge you to keep the commandment without spot or blame until the manifestation of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who is the blessed and only sovereign King of kings, Lord of lords. In the presence of God, I charge you to keep the commandment without spot or blame. This is an exhortation, a call to righteousness, but in command form rather than in story form. There can be no misunderstanding what Paul is calling Timothy and therefore us to do. He literally says, I charge you to do this. Last week, Jesus told a story about a dishonest manager to illustrate something that he wants you to do. Paul just writes, do this. And Paul's call is more wide-ranging too, isn't it? At least it is here. He's not just concerned that we be generous, although he does talk about the love of money and how it can be the root of all kinds of evil. He calls us to shun sin in general. And pursue righteousness. He charges us to keep the commandments without spot or blemish. Now I can't read 
this wide-ranging call to righteousness without thinking of the place where Jesus does make a similarly wide-ranging call in his Sermon on the Mount. There, Jesus makes a similar exhortation. He tells us what real righteousness looks like in a bunch of different ways. He does it in the context of anger, where he says that not only shouldn't you murder, you shouldn't be angry with anyone in your heart. He tells us what real righteousness looks like in the context of lust, when he says that not only shouldn't you commit adultery, you should not even look at someone with lust in your heart. He does the same thing with oaths. Don't promise or swear this or that. Just let your yes mean yes. He does it with retaliation. Don't return evil for evil, but turn the other cheek. He's not done. He does it with loving enemies too. Don't just love your friends, he says, but actually love those who persecute you. Don't act like you're loving them. Love them. And then he says the sentence that Paul's exhortation to Timothy reminded me of. He says, therefore, you must be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect. And St. Paul in our reading says much the same, doesn't he? I charge you, he says, to keep the commandment without spot or blame until the manifestation of our Lord Jesus Christ. So yes, Calvin, you have to be good in your heart and spirit without spot or blame. Be perfect. Keep the commandment without spot or blame. Be Perfect. This is a charge that is true and right and good. So the question for us is, how do we live in light of it? Well, first, let's remember how Jesus begins his Sermon on the Mount. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus came to fulfill the law and the prophets. This charge, this true and right and holy and good charge that God gives us, that Paul echoes, is a charge that Jesus accomplishes. Now, that doesn't mean don't do it. It means Jesus has done it. Let me tell you what I mean. Uh, Caroline Cobb, a musician whose songs we've sung here on several occasions, has a song based on the Sermon on the Mount. And the song is called Everything You've Heard. Here's how part of that song goes. You've heard it said, don't murder anyone, but you carry your anger like a knife and your insults like a gun. You've heard it said, don't cheat on your wife. But your mind is a motel room, and you undress the other woman with your eyes. Oh, everything you've heard, I'm turning on its head. I'm cutting to the quick of the law and the prophets. I'm going to finish what they said. You've heard it said, a king will come with a sword. But I tell you to turn the other cheek, and I'll wear a crown of thorns. And that last line sort of sums everything up, doesn't it? I tell you 
to turn the other cheek, and I'll wear a crown of thorns. I, Jesus says, command you to do something, and then I accomplish something for you. Jesus accomplishes what he commands. So when Paul charges us to fight the good fight, he makes sure we know that it must be to perfection. We made the same good confession that Jesus made in front of Pontius Pilate, that we are subject to our Father in heaven. But then Jesus did the thing that separates him from us. After the confession, he actually was blameless. And he was perfect. And then going to the cross, he gave it to us. He wore the crown of thorns. And he wore it for you. So Paul charges us to pursue righteousness. How shall we pursue it? Do we set our chins, put our heads down and get to work? Yes, we try hard. But trying hard doesn't look like Calvin trying to trick Santa Claus. Trying hard isn't trying to act good. Trying hard for a Christian looks like getting down on your knees again and crying out for the merciful work of God to be poured into your life. Putting your head down means bowing in a prayer of confession, admitting that once again you have fallen short of the standard that God has set for you. It is no accident that our liturgy has us, has us confessing every single week. We acknowledge and repent of our many sins and offenses, which we have committed by thought, word, and deed against your divine majesty, provoking most justly your righteous anger against us. We are deeply sorry for these transgressions. The burden of them is more than we can bear. But we don't stop. Have mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, most merciful Father, for your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ's sake. For his sake, because of his accomplishment, have mercy on us again. So, submit yourself to God's expectation. Acknowledge its truth and holiness. Confess and repent. And remember to take comfort once again in your Savior's accomplishment. Because we need to be more than Calvin trying to trick Santa Claus by acting good. We need to actually be good. And it is Jesus' blood. It is Jesus' finished work for you that makes it true. In Him, you are good. And it is his goodness and your continued recognition of your need for it that actually and truly and really births these things in you. Godliness, faith, love, endurance, gentleness, righteousness. In the end, like it did in last week's parable, the exhortation gives way to the announcement. Christ has been 
generous. His righteousness is yours. So I charge you to keep the commandment without spot or blame until the manifestation of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will bring about at the right time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, Lord of lords. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life. Do this. But remember what has already been done for you. Get down on your knees again and acknowledge your sin. Confess it and remember that the comfortable words are actually true. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation, the perfect offering without spot or blame. For your sins. And not for yours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. This spotless, blameless offering. Jesus is sufficient for you again today. Amen.